turn our hearts to the Lord as we offer a prayer of intercession, a prayer that we pray for the needs of the kingdom as well as for our own church and the many impacted by it. Let us now, O Lord, let us now go before our Lord in prayer. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace upon us, that we would, as your children, have a great honored status in your kingdom, that we could come before you in making petitions and pleas of our own desires, wants, and needs, and that according to your will, you hear us. You hear as we call upon you. We begin, O Lord, by thinking of our own government that you have placed over us. We think of our own governor here in Illinois. We pray, O Lord, for him, that, O Lord, you would give him wisdom to rule over us well, that the law that you've written upon his heart would be the law that he would use to govern our land. We pray that the power and authority that you've placed upon him as a, as a common minister, as our confession states, would lay upon him also the gravity of the office that he holds. As I'm recalling just from a few days ago, O Lord, of, uh, of the banquet that I attended, O Lord, we pray for the unborn in this regard. We pray that you would protect life within our own state, but also, O Lord, our own country. We pray that you would restrain the hands of the evil one within our own government as it relates to life. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd use common Christians to this end. Raise up men and women, whether from our own body or from other bodies within the Christian church, to represent us well before our government, seeking to institute laws that would honor you, that bring glory to you. We also pray, O oh Lord, when thinking of the world itself, we think, O oh Lord, of Confex and his ministry as we received a, a disheartening update over the past week in regards to cyclones devastating the city that he lives in and many homes of the members that he leads. His own church is dealing with difficulty. We pray, O oh Lord, that even in the midst of the downcast nature of difficulty that we experience, whether it be through acts of God in regards to disaster, we pray, O oh Lord, that you'd use Confex and his ministry for your glory. Now, this situation would not be wasted in that, not be used for your glory, but that you'd use this ministry to bring Christ to those who are downcast in Malawi. We pray that even despite this difficult circumstance, that the church would grow more joyous, more grateful more honoring to your great name. We pray, O oh Lord, that you're with Confex, with his family, and that he, as he continues to minister, that you'd remind him that his Lord had suffered greatly for him. We also pray, O oh Lord, for those who are lost in the world. We think of the great heritage as we read through the epistles, even to the church of Philippi. We, we think of the church that was once strong in the Middle East but now, in large effect, dormant. We pray, O oh Lord, for those who are lost in the Middle East that have, been, uh, that have been distracted and deceived by Islam. We pray, O oh Lord, that 
the strength of Islam in the Middle East would weaken, and that in that weakness, O Lord, that the church would sprout forth triumphantly and strongly. We pray, O Lord, for the church that still does reside in these restricted countries. We pray, O Lord, that you'd give them perseverance, that you'd give them encouragement, that you would remind them of the great sufferings of Christ as he suffered greatly to bring us salvation. Be with the Coptic church in this regard. Reform her. Bolster her. And we pray, O Lord, for those, those many, those millions who are lost in the Middle East. Lord, we pray for revival there. We pray for an outpouring of your Spirit that we could look upon the East again and say triumphantly, there is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also pray, O Lord, for our own ministry here. We think of our music ministry. We thank you for those many who participate in it. We thank you for Tammy and Mitchell and others. We pray, O Lord, that as they lead us in music, that we would become known as a people of praise, that we would not merely sing songs quietly in our hearts, but that we would be like cymbals and gongs, permeating all of this sanctuary with joyful noise. We pray, O oh Lord, that we would be a people that unify in one voice, declaring your glory in our assembly. And we thank you, O oh Lord, for those who help facilitate that through music. We thank you for our choir. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you bolster their numbers as well. We thank you for a strong music ministry, and we pray that you continue to bolster it here as those servants continue to serve in our midst. We also continue, O oh Lord, to lift up those who are ailing. We thought of Confex earlier, but we also think of Joanne as she's absent from us in Kea. We pray, O oh Lord, that you continue to help them heal and to heal well. We pray, O oh Lord, that your countenance would shine upon them, that you'd use our congregation to minister Christ to them, even in their absence that we would be a people that would bring the scriptures to them, that would keep them company, that would be awfully re uh, reminded regularly, I mean, of them in prayers. We pray, O oh Lord, that they would see the love of Christ by our love exhibited to them. We pray, O oh Lord, for quick healing, for quick recovery, for full recovery, and we pray, O oh Lord, that even as soon as next week, we would see them well enough, O oh Lord, to be among us. Be with all of those who, Lord, who are downcast. This is a season of sickness. We are reminded of that by those who are ordinarily with us, who are unable to be with us. Give all healing within our church. Give all of us mercy in this regard. As we continue to worship you, O Lord, bless the reading of your scripture and the preaching of your word. In its simplicity, may it cut our hearts deeply. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Will you stand now as we continue our worship service by reading uh, Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Last week, we heard that selfish ambition and conceit destroy the church. But today, we see that what unifies the church more than anything is self-humiliation. And that self-humiliation is found in the person and work of Christ himself. Hear now from Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement, and we'll start in verse 1, sorry. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, 
Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name of that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Here ends the epistle lesson, and this is the word of God. You may be seated. A few years back, I sat in a session meeting and we were discussing the low morale that we were experiencing in our nursery ministry. The morale and commitment seemed to be in the ground. We needed many more volunteers than we had and people were being overwhelmed by their own work. The church, even at that time, had nursery workers that they hired from outside to come in in order to alleviate some of that stress. But there was a problem among us. Low morale. The nursery wasn't functioning how it should function. And as I looked around the session room of the men that served and had served almost uh, for, for many decades and years, I couldn't help but think that not one of these men had ever volunteered for nursery. Not one of them. Not one of them ever donned the hall the nursery wing, to be with the youngest among us. We wanted to solve the problem, but we weren't willing to be a part of the solution. And it was difficult for the church at that time as we continued to navigate that. But to our own, my own chagrin and to the grace of others, after that meeting, in order to help alleviate the problem, some of those elders began to volunteer in the nursery. Of course, they would withhold from changing diapers and such, but they would begin to read books to children and play with children and to serve the smallest among us. But why during that meeting that we had, why was it so odd, so rare for an elder to serve in such a ministry? Well, I think it's because of our own pride. You see, when we sit down as elders, we thought of ourselves as rulers, as shepherds, as preachers, as teachers, as overseers, as counselors. We enjoyed what we understood as ourselves, the high calling of ministry. And because of that high calling, perhaps the nursery was too low for us. We could be used better elsewhere. At least I know some of us thought that. And in that, we failed to serve the smallest among us. Teaching those smallest what it means to be a Christian in God's house. The same is true in other aspects of the life of the church. 
There are things and opportunities that we believe are beneath us. Whether that be a children's Sunday school teacher, whether that be setting up chairs or tearing them down, whether it be preparing communion, some jobs we deem beneath us. Some jobs others could handle better. We have a pride issue. Paul has well acquainted with a pride issue. In chapter 3, he gives us an example of how he could be prideful. He is a Hebrew of Hebrews, a zealous Pharisee. He is a holy man in Judaism. But what we learn is that when Paul deals with the spirit coming with inside him, when he is transformed and changed forever, all of those things that he was once prideful for, reason of great bolstering and encouragement, would become a loss to him. He, all of that zealous pride for his own identity would melt away All of his zeal for his position would melt away, and he would count it all as loss. And so today, as you struggle with pride yourselves, as all of us do, we see the great call for humility. The humility that Paul exhibits as he is imprisoned uh, during this time, but also the humility that we see from Christ himself. We all struggle with humility. We all struggle with pride. Whether that be volunteering for nursery, whether that be volunteering for Sunday school, whether that be volunteering to be a greeter in the church, setting up or tearing down, whether it be men and women women struggling to apply Ephesians 5, children struggling to pick up their food and eat it or put away their toys, we all struggle with pride and humility. It's difficult for all of us. But today we get a picture of how we can lean into that new identity that the Lord gives us. Since we all struggle with pride, Christ in His grace shares His humility with us. What does He teach us from His humility? He teaches us much. First, He teaches us selflessness. We see this in verse 5, but also what precedes it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus. The mind that he is talking to is the mind that is found within verse 4 of this passage. Let each of you not only look out for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have that mind among yourselves. You see, as we think about having that mind among ourselves, verse 5 shows us what that mind is grounded in, which is yours in Jesus. Christ Jesus, you might by my mere uh, explanation or even thought of this is that Jesus is our mere example, but Jesus is actually more than an example in this passage. Sure, we should learn how to be selfless in the Lord Jesus Christ, but He is more than an example. He is our identity. When He comes in, He changes, reorganizes, and changes all that we are. All of our perspective, all that we think that we are is transformed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, there's an unbreakable cord that binds every one of us together in selflessness. If all our identity is attached intimately to the Lord Jesus Christ himself, then everything that outflows from us is connected to Christ. And therefore, we are all connected in Christ. There is a new identity that we all share as new creations in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is in that, in that new identity that we find the love of the Lord, 
that we find the unbreakable nature of uniting as one body, that our mindsets are shared in the Lord as we heard last week. He begins to reorganize our lives. He begins to reconfigure our desires, our emotions, and our works. When the Spirit comes in, He reconfigures all that we are. And in that reconfiguring, we learn to be a selfless people. As we had just moved here, we are moving into our home and we configure it how we currently want it. But it's a new home. And how we currently have it configured might not be the best way to have it configured. Our second story is a work zone that we're currently rehabbing and hopes to move all of our children upstairs so that we can enjoy the main floor. But it's currently configured where our children are just right next to us, easily accessible to us, too accessible to us. It is unideal to sleep through the night and to sleep through it well. We can hear baby Charles wake up and cry in the middle of the night. We can hear John Owen open the door and flick on the light of the bathroom so that he can have a nightlight in his room. They're too close. As we begin to restore the upstairs, we can reconfigure our home to not only make it from a house into a home, but to better utilize its functionality. That's what the Spirit does in our home, in our hearts. Reconfigures it all. And in that reconfiguring, those, those vices, that pride that we once had, he reorganizes it, he, he destroys it, pushes it out, gets a dumpster, throws it all in, and begins to renovate, reconfigure, so that our hearts function more holistically. That holistic nature comes in the form of the mindset of selflessness. Our example in Christ and our identity in Christ is that mindset of selflessness. Think of the life of Christ. Christ is the one who would leave the 99 to save the one from danger. We learn that Christ would be the one to lay down his own life for his sheep. That he would be the one that forgives people even when they should not be, at least humanly speaking, forgiven. Even as... Peter denied the Lord three times. Christ would come to him in such a lowly manner. Correct him kindly. Christ was selfless. Even when he had great opportunity to jump ugly, as we would say in the South, he was like a sheep before his shearers silent. He was a selfless Savior. And that temperament, that attitude permeates throughout all of scripture and as it permeates throughout all of scripture it is given then to God's people. One of my favorite theologians is would be no surprise to you is John Calvin. And in his introduction to the Institutes of the Christian Religion he talks about knowledge of self and knowledge of God which comes first. Do we know do we know ourselves first or do we know God's first? And he says it's a it's a perplexing question in itself. But he says this as we learn about ourselves through knowledge of God. It is evident that a man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God. Come down after such contemplation, he looks into himself. For we always seem to ourselves just and upright and wise and holy until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. When the Lord comes in into our hearts, he reveals all of our sin. And in that revelation of sin, we are humbled. 
for God would save such a wretch as me. And in that humbling, we look at one another who share the same profession. He would save a wretch as me. We look at one another, both sensing our lowliness before a holy God, selflessly as servants serving one another. It's hard, though, to serve one another when we set ourselves in perfectly tight-knit routines. I'm a man of extraordinary routine. I love my routines. I do the same thing every day, every week. That's how the Lord has built me. When my wife is sent to Dairy Queen, I get a, a Butterfinger blizzard. I've done it for at least seven years, and I did it way before I even knew her. Always the same order. I'm completely satisfied. We do debate the size, of course. She doesn't think I need a large. I usually feel sick after, but uh, to my own delight. I'm a person of routine. And my routines rarely change. But when we are people that are so focused on our own routines, it's hard to be selfless because we have to give up those routines in order to care for one another. Especially when our routines are grounded in our own selfishness. They usually are. We must learn from Scripture that even our routines need to be altered, changed. We need to loosen a little. Maybe I don't need to write my sermon on Monday morning at 8 a.m. Maybe I don't need to make calls on Wednesday at 12. Maybe I can restructure my own schedule to see the needs of others. It's a, a passage convicts me as much as it can convict you. But we're reminded that it is, it, is, it is difficult not only for us to maintain humility. This is not a unique thing. It's found throughout all of Scripture. Uh, we look through the Bible. Men and women generally struggle to maintain selflessness. They tend to struggle to maintain humility. Think of, of Moses as he loses his temper and strikes the rock and is forbidden of going into the promised land for a time. Think of uh, Joshua as he seeks by his own strength to capture Ai, and then he is defeated. Think of Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll learn in, in but a couple weeks as we study Daniel. His own pride leads his own demise as he becomes an animal. As Peter, as I mentioned just a moment ago, denying the Lord three times. Our own pride tends to get in the way. And we're reminded then, we're reminded then, when our pride gets in the way, we must remember our identity in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only as an example, but something that binds us together well. This is the second and perhaps the last time I'll bring up catechism as we seek to apply this passage, but we are on the ninth commandment last week. And, and you know, the ninth commandment is about truth. How do we maintain truth? How do we live as a people of truth? And one of the things that stuck out to me as we read those catechism questions together is that we are, in order to uphold the ninth commandment, to look at the gifts and graces of our neighbors, of all our neighbors, those whom we love, those whom we don't love, those whom we dislike, those whom we struggle with, those whom we are most critical of. We are to look, for their, uh, look at what God has done in regards to giving them gifts and graces. It's helpful for me to remind myself of that as I am in the midst of a debate, in the midst of disagreement, in the midst of toil and struggle. It is hard for me to remember the gifts and graces of my neighbor. I think the worst 
of my neighbor. I tend to delight in their downfall because they had deserved it. I can be vindictive and selfish. It's in the Edberg blood to hold a grudge. But this passage reminds me well of the selflessness that is called. And that selflessness, thinking through the ninth command, comes by not zoning in on the faults of my neighbor, but rather zoning in on the gifts and graces that God has given them. What I learn as a pastor among people is that even those whom we disagree with most, there is much to empathize with them in. Even when we are vehemently in disagreement, are they so unredeemable that Christ can't wash them in his blood? I think not. Since we struggle with Christ, Christ shares his humility with us. He teaches us in that his selflessness, but he also teaches us lowliness. This uh, compounds as it compounds from last week, but we see this in verses 6 through 8. Look at verse 6 with me. Though he was the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I could preach a whole sermon on this one verse. Maybe I should have. But what is Paul talking about here? It is one of the most contested verses. The form of God. When thinking about the lowliness of Christ, Paul begins with the form of God in Christ. The greatness of God. Who was the Lord Jesus Christ? He was the form of God. Our confession says he is the same in substance, equal in power and glory. He's the form of God. The same substance as God himself. That baby born in a manger in Bethlehem, in in that stall, was the same form of God. God dwelled completely in the person of Christ. Calvin goes on to say this is a Calvinistic sermon in many ways than one. The form of God means here his majesty. For as God is known by his appearance and form, so the majesty which shines forth in God is his figure. The person of God found within Christ himself. But this great God, this great Christ, also takes the form of man. If you look in this passage, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Also the form of man. He lowered himself. The great God. The God that is due all worship and praise. The God that we revere here in our worship. So great. So mighty. So awesome. Did not count equality to be got with God to be grasped because he lowered himself in the form of a servant. The one who is due worship and praise becomes servant. This is what our catechism says in regards to the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The great one. The great and awesome God who takes on flesh. The one from the highest heights that reaches down to the lowest depths. Who becomes a slave, a servant for us. I think a great way to illustrate this motif, and perhaps one of my mentors would scold me for even using this, is uh, from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. He always hated Lord of the Rings uh, illustrations. But you remember as as those little hobbits in volume one of the fellowship, Frodo, Sam, Pippin, Mary, they set off on their journey. They're being chased, and, and they find a town of Bree. And in that town of Bree, they are to meet with someone there. And as they enter the pub to meet, or the inn, the prancing pony, I believe, they see an ominous figure. 
a menacing stranger, a ranger of ruthless and rootless origins. As you see, as you've watched uh, the movies or have read the books, you can sense the off-putting nature of this ranger. His identity is concealed. But as the books go on, this strider becomes something of an ally to these hobbits. But even greater than an ally, this is no ominous stranger at all, but the king of mankind, Aragorn, stripped from his rightful throne, in exile, away from his kingdom. Throughout many, many pages, you were suspicious of this character. You did not know his true identity. He was lowly, a man who deserved honor, regal, reverence for his office as king sits in the inn in mystery. Suspicion would dwell upon the town of Bree as they saw this ominous man in their midst. In some ways, this is what Christ does in the incarnation. As he comes down and takes human flesh, he's like Aragorn, who his identity is concealed. All the honor, all the glory that is due Christ's name is laid aside. His identity for much of his life is concealed as the second person of the Trinity. And this is what verse 7 means by when he emptied himself. It does not mean he emptied himself of his divinity itself, but that he was concealed. His divinity was concealed for the time. Instead of being worshipped and praised, he took the form of a servant in the likeness of man. He was like Aragorn, hidden in the inn. He emptied himself. We see that emptying nature as Christ enters the desert as the Spirit leads him and as he is tempted by Satan himself. So you see, Satan wanted the Lord to forsake these passages here. He wanted the Lord to invoke his kingly and rightful process. The angels should come down and minister to you. You are the Lord over all their creation. You can make this stone into bread. You are the God that rules over all. If you bow down to me, all of these kingdoms will bow down to you. Satan was trying to usurp this, the form of the servant, the likeness of man, the emptied Christ. He wanted Christ to fill himself with the glory that was due his name. But Christ doesn't. He doesn't fill himself. Instead of filling himself with the glory that is due his name, he offers himself in the form of a servant. Matthew 20, 28 says, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give himself as a ransom for many. The high and mighty servant lowers himself. He stoops low for his people. And this stooping, as you see in verse 8, shows us his lowly obedience by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. How low was the servant of of the Lord Jesus Christ? How low was he? He was low to dying the worst death that humanity knew at the time. That is how low he stooped. He stoops so low, even despite his great and exalted nature, he stoops so low that he would die as an insurrectionist in Israel. He was obedient to the Father's will. He was obedient by dying and taking upon himself our sins, but he was also obedient actively by living out a life 
perfectly. But what does this do for us? You say, yeah, this is good theology. How do we apply this? Well, in the church, I think we're all tempted to pull rank every once in a while. As often as it is, I'm learning as senior pastor, a lot of people want me to do what I want to do. And it's tempting to pull rank. Well, I am the pastor. I could tell the elders that whenever I want something done myself. I am the pastor. You might, as an elder, say, well, I am an elder. When somebody gives you a request, I don't like that idea, and I am an elder. I'm an elder's wife, so you should get in line. You know how long I've been a member here? Maybe not in this church. It's only 10 years old. But in other churches, 200-year-old churches, I've been a member here for 150 years where our family's lineage comes. It's so tempting to pull rank, to exalt our name. I give the most money to this church, and so I should have some sway in how it is governed and ruled. But the selfless never pull rank. Christ doesn't pull rank. He could have pulled rank with Satan in the wilderness, but he doesn't. Instead, he lowers himself. And I think the greatest image of Christ doing this in the New Testament is the example of when Christ himself takes the water basin and the towel and he begins to wash the feet of his disciples. The great visible example of the Lord lowering himself. You may not think it's that big of a deal, um, but this was the Middle East, and these were sandals. People's feet were as disgusting as they could be, and they were not enjoyable to clean. They were so awful that even a Hebrew servant was too good to wash the feet of those visitors in their home. This was only left to the pagans. You get a Gentile to clean the feet of our people. You don't get one of us. And yet Christ, in His lowliness, does what even none of His disciples would even fathom doing, and that is washing their crusty, broken feet. Such lowliness. Such lowliness. We are called all to be that lowly. Whether that be in our nursery, whether that be when we build a building, the pastor cleaning the bathroom, picking up plates, whether that be how we publicly talk about our spouse in public, we are called to lower ourselves. Whether that be men from time to time at least changing some diapers or doing some dishes, maybe things that we don't look forward to, we're called to have a lowly disposition and nature because our nature is tied to our identity in Christ. He teaches us by entering our hearts and showing it to be true. Since we struggle with pride, he shares his humility with us. He shares his, he teaches us his selflessness, his loneliness, and finally but quickly, his salvation. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name above every name. You see, this, this story doesn't end in utter lowliness. This story ends in exaltation. This is actually a hymn that Paul is referencing here, and there's actually a middle stanza missing. You see, it goes straight to exaltation. We miss resurrection. We miss the days where the Lord uh, drew the disciples back to himself. Death and exaltation. It's supposed to be jarring. The lowly servant who was once lowly is now exalted above every name above the earth. A name being not only who it represented, but the person itself. If you evoke the name, it means something greatly. 
represents Jesus himself. His name is exalted above every name over all the creation. His name, his reputation, his being. A name comes with a lot. Every one of you has a name. It could be Lawler, Rogers, Edberg. We have a reputation to uphold. And by our lives, we can either tarnish that reputation or exalt it. Our children might inherit a great reputation or a poor reputation. They can make it better or worse. That's what Ecclesiastes teaches us. But not the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is exalted, the one over every name. He is the Lord. And the right response for those who see the exalted Lord is, as this passage concludes, is to bend and confess. To bend, to offer a posture of submission. To lower himself to yourself before him. It's to bend. Think of going before a king. The first thing you do to pay homage to the king is to bend. To show your service, your allegiance to him. Not to merely say nice things about him, but to bend and to show honor where honor is due. But not only that, to confess with the mouths. You're not only to bend and show homage, but you're to say, you are my king. You are to not only align yourself to his works, but you are to continue his works. This is what Isaiah 6 talks about as Isaiah comes before a, a, a holy God. As he sees this holy God, he can do nothing but bend and confess. I'm a man of unclean lips amongst the people of unclean lips. What comes out from the mouth is from what is within. We are to bend and confess the Lord because his name is exalted above every name. We can have the mind of a, a, a coronation here in this passage, the coronation of a king. We have very rare examples within our own society of coronations, um, but in a few months we'll experience a coronation. It's not the coronation of anyone in our own country, but of King Charles III. And if you recall back of when Queen Elizabeth died, it was a regal affair. It was ceremonial. It was a unifying experience for the British people. And you remember the, the, the greatness of the nature, even of her death and funeral. It was of something that is a spectacular note. The queen is dead. Long live the king, or even better, God save the king. It impressed me, the, the mere tradition of English society. Though whether they believe it or not is debated, those parliamentarians gathered in the abbey and sang historic hymns. And instead of saying, long live the king, as you might expect, they recognized the greatness of God in saving the king. God save him. God protect him. The grandeur of such an occasion. You'll see the grandeur of King Charles, though long awaited, in about a couple months. How much greater is the grandeur of our own king? The king at his coronation where every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that he is the Lord over all. In thinking through this passage as we close up, when our own struggle with pride, if we truly sensed this greatness of our God, it would lead us to great selflessness. If we truly sense the regal reverence that is due his name, like the, the Britons seeing the coronation of their own king and paying homage to him, revering him, honoring him, 
If we would sense our own king like that, how great our selflessness, our lowering, and our humility would be. It teaches us the way of salvation. It teaches us worship. We are to do all that we are in light of His glory. And that means we are to lower ourselves. Whether it means elders in the nursery, serving the youngest among us, teaching them the gospel that they may not know a day apart from Him. Whether that be teaching children's Sunday school, whether that be helping and substituting in, whether that be greeting, putting up chairs, or taking them down. The King is before us. Pay homage and lower yourself before Him. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for a lowly heart. Instill within each and every one of us here, the oldest among us to the youngest, a heart of humility. Burn away the pride that seats deep within each of us, and as the, as the roots of pride continue to well up again, give us the sharp acts of repentance to cut them down once more. Create within our congregation a people of selflessness. Teach us humility. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.